Welcome to Improv Interviews. Today's guest is a fascinating, energetic fellow, Dr. Matt Tolliver. Hello, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, well, you've got a really interesting story to tell. I'm really happy that you're here today. And why don't we start off with telling us a little bit about yourself, maybe in childhood, <clears throat> did you like acting or were you in plays? Tell us a little bit about what's going on in childhood and high school that maybe got you into improv. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in very rural part of West Virginia. I mean, West Virginia itself is very rural. It's a very rural state, but um, I grew up about 20 minutes uh, from the biggest, I guess you would say, city. Um, and so there was not a lot to do around where I grew, where I live or our house was. There were other kids in the neighborhood that we played with and would run around with, but um, wasn't too much happening. French Creek is the name of the official name of the city where I grew up. But there was a, a little sort of general store at the end of our road, about a quarter mile. And they had movies, you could rent movies there. And I remember as a kid, I just, that just opened my world to what's out there and just the imagination and creativity. And so I remember as a kid walking out, like, I, I don't even know, so many times to, to rent movies. And I just remember renting anything and everything they had. And so um, that really started my love for just creativity and, and cinema and movies, things like that. Um, my parents were very creative, very imaginative. My dad, I remember we're always laughing, always having fun. Halloween was always a big uh, <laughs> thing for us. So I still love that. I still make like props and things for Halloween. Um, but I think my, I think the biggest sort of introduction into improv was from 4-H. And a lot of people, when they think 4-H, they think animals, farm animals, agriculture, things like that. But Yeah, pigs. <laughs> right, right. Um, which I did actually have a pig when I was in middle school, but um, it wasn't Charlotte, was it? Oh no, Charlotte no. was a spider. <laughs> right, right. No, it was uh, Oliver. Oliver Tolliver was his name. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> but really, for me, um, 4-H for us was more about leadership development and community service. I didn't do much agriculture farm we didn't have a farm I mean we had a garden but so anyway um one of the best parts of 4-H was always camp in the summer and we had tribes based on um local and indigenous tribes that lived around West Virginia but what we had to do was we would have a, a council circle and your tribe, your group would have to make up different things. We'd have to make up songs or cheers or funny stunts, which were like kind of skits. And I loved that. I loved that. Just you get sort of a premise, just like improv. You get a premise, you get you get a basic sort of base reality. And then you just riff off of that. We would come up with Again, if it were songs or cheers or the funny stunts that we called them. And that was really my first, I didn't know it at the time, but that really was my first sort of 
introduction to improv. Um, and I loved it. I always looked forward to that. You I know, just, I've, I've heard 4-H was an entry for other people that have been on our show. So oh, really? That's terrific. Yeah. Fascinating. That's yeah, that's fascinating. terrific. And you're doing group projects together. It, yes. Have you ever heard of Odyssey of the Mind? No. Huh. Oh, that's something that kids get involved with and they have a national championship. Huh. And uh, I've known a lot of kids that have been involved with it, but it's something like where they get together and they have a problem to solve and they do it creatively. And um, yeah. it's called Odyssey of the Mind. You might check it out. It's nice. pretty interesting. Yeah. Are yeah. you still in West Virginia? I am. So um, I I was in theater in high school, but I mean, again, it's very rural West Virginia. So, you know, not a lot of major productions, but I was I was president of our thespian troupe in high school um, and then actually got a theater scholarship to West Virginia Wesleyan College, which is in wow. Buchanan, which was in the yeah. hometown. Um right which at first is not too exciting as a freshman, you know, you're just doing the ticket sales and <laughs> not too, not too exciting. But um, so yes, I did that. And then I decided I'm getting out of West Virginia. Um, I'm going to New York City to see what happens. And so I applied to NYU and got in and started my master's. Um, yes. Started my well, that's where, that's where I got my master's. Where did you yeah. get your master's in? At well, I started in school, it was school counseling, it was counseling, and then I was doing the school track, um, and so I was there, and I loved it, I mean, it was overwhelming, of course, at first, um, and then my mom got sick, she had, a, had developed a brain uh, cyst on her brain stem, and so I ended up moving back to West Virginia, and thankfully, everything worked out great, great, uh, medical professions here professionals here at um wv west virginia university so thankfully she she is okay but uh just the money to living in new york so i got a ga a grad assistant position with um a program uh similar to 4-h so uh, i worked with them it's called energy express it's a summer reading uh, we do art projects, theater, different skits, same thing. It's it's actually under the umbrella of WVU Extension, which is also 4-H. Um, but anyway, so I finished my master's actually at West Virginia University. And then um, after I, I graduated from there in 2008, I started working as a school counselor uh, over in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, and was there for six years, and then was, what kind of environment was that? What kind of environment was the eastern panhandle? So it's very interesting because you have a lot of uh, Washington D.C. influence there. It's a very unique town. Um, so you have folks who are retired who. Uh, have moved from D.C. just looking to retire from, you know, whatever, government or whatever. Um, and so you have sort of an intellectual, there was a very intellectual, artistic sort of niche there in that town. Berkeley Springs is the name of the town. Um, but then you also have very rural it is a very another sort of rural um, town. So you have like the the native people who are more rural 
um, low income, high poverty. And then you have these folks from BC. And then when I moved there was in 2008. And that's really when, you know, the housing bubble burst and, and the economy was <laughs> collapsing. And so a lot of people um, had left, businesses shut down. And um, so, yeah, it was a big impact. A lot of folks struggling there. Um, so that's when I was selected as West Virginia School Counselor of the Year. And I think, again, a lot of that brings in improv exercises and, and a lot of the stuff with applied improv, just relating to people. So I decided it was too small, um, needed a change. And so I moved back to Morgantown, which is where West Virginia University is. So I started working again at an elementary school and started teaching some college classes. I actually started teaching the school um, like what is school counseling for their master's program. So I taught that. And then I was also teaching uh, supervising practicum students and internship students. And uh, I've taught the ethics class, which I would love. I really want to figure out a um, applied improv for ethics. I think that mm -hmm. would be fascinating. Um, and um, and actually this year I'm teaching the career counseling course. So I'm bringing in a lot of applied improv stuff because what the research tells us is anymore, really technical skills you can learn on the job. There's not, there's not a lot of jobs that require specific technical skills. I mean, you still need to have either an associate's degree or, or some sort of training, but really what employers are looking for are these soft skills, these interpersonal skills that that is exactly what applied improv is, how to relate to other people and, um, you know, how to, even if you don't necessarily agree with another person's perspective or reality, you accept that that's mm -hmm. true for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyway, I, um, uh, while I was still working full time as a school counselor, teaching some classes. I decided, oh, why don't I start my PhD? I, I'm sure I have time. <laughs> um, so uh, I, at first I was looking at doing something based on a needs assessment that looked at risk factors and protective factors for kids. But in the world of academia and research to work with kids, there's a ton of red tape and a lot of hoops to jump through. So um, my dissertation chair said, well, what else are you passionate about? What else do you love? And I, well, improv. And, and I'd been doing some, some research and reading about you know, applied improv and counseling and, and uh, with uh, clients with Alzheimer's and dementia and autism and a lot of these things that were happening. And so I said, um, I'd like to do something with applied improv. And uh, that's where I'd seen a lot of stuff about this idea of cognitive complexity. And it was very intrigued. And I was like, huh, that's really what we do in improv and applied improv. Um, I forgot to mention, too, while this was happening, I also joined a professional improv troupe, the only one in West Virginia, and I've been with them for about six years now, 
and we travel all throughout the state. We've been all over, I think, um, doing shows and performing and really focus on West Virginia artists and um, doing some of that kind of And work. what's the name of your troupe? We are the Fearless Fools. I love that, Fearless Fools. Now, yeah. I want to go back a little bit in history yeah. and talk about uh, your first improv classes and then where did you take classes uh, up until before you started your own troupe? So, um, as I, like I said, when I was at uh, West Virginia Wesleyan, I, I had a theater scholarship. And so my, I started out as arts administration and I took a business class and did terribly. And I was like, I, all right, I don't, I don't get balance sheets and spreadsheets. So uh, I switched over to education. So elementary education. So that's what my degree is actually in elementary ed. But because I had the theater scholarship, I still had to do performances and still do some shows. And so um, I started with um, an acting minor. And so that's really where uh, I started getting into some of that improv stuff and just the act, the training, acting and things like that. Um, but then I, you know, honestly, even in high school, like doing some of the shows, just like pre-rehearsal stuff. I remember doing just like um, movement exercises. And and so even some of those shows, like even getting ready for productions in high school, we did some like basic, just like, you know, movement, physical stuff. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's really where any sort of training came in. And then at Wesleyan. Um, and then I just sort of got away from it until about six years ago when I joined the troop. And they really had done a lot of training. The The founder actually worked with Second City. He had gone up and done a training up there. Um, he's no longer a part of the troop um, right now, but um, he sort of introduced a lot of the concepts and really training. And then they kind of trained me, which led me to do my own research and my own uh, finding things too. So I'm kind of a, I'm a Spolin uh, aficionado, Viola Spolin. Nice. Did you yeah. come across her book and use her book at all? Um, I, yeah. And I think that's really like what spawned a lot of things and the improv games over in Europe as well. Um, so yes. Um, and when I, my dissertation talked about sort of the history of improv, um, that's, that's sort of the base. Yeah. The improv games. Right. And there's different schools of improv. I mean, there's a, a ton of them now, a lot of people in Europe and the States trained with yeah. Keith Johnstone. Yes. I yeah. I came across yep. him. So, um, well, Viola's Spolin's my goddess, the Bible. And as a yeah. social worker, I love the connection between Hull House and yes. social work and all of that. Yeah. So, um, and you're just a natural man, right? You were just a natural. <laughs> I guess so. It's funny because in the troupe when I first started, we would, they would kind of show a game and, uh, or they would say, hey, you know, who wants to jump in on this one? And they'd be like, man, have you, do you feel comfortable with that? And I would say, yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> so the joke now is, oh, he's seen it. He can do it. So I, I guess, I guess so. 
Well, you know that saying, see one, do one, teach one. Yes, right, right. Yes. So um, do you have any favorite games? I know that the games you use with children may be different. I'm not sure. But um, what do you have favorite games that you really enjoy playing? Um, with adults and then with children. Let's do the adults first and then children. Um, I think with kids, um, I think just, just the basic charades, I think with kids, just like, um, that's a really good sort of introduction. So, and they love that. It's a sort of a more, it's just a simple thing. There's not a lot of, and, and most of them have played charades, so they kind of know how it goes. So I would say for kids, it's just a basic charades. And sometimes I would let them make up their own uh, things and, I would have them write them on um, index cards and then mix them up and then they would sort of pass around and, um, you know, do what do what somebody else in the group had made up. So I think for kids, charades is sort of the, the easiest one to do. And they love that with adults. Sorry. So with children, when you say charades, are you talking about um, games like mirror movement work, um, character work? Um, object work and then, uh, yeah no great question I think it because in the counseling world it was really a lot of specific group stuff so um, sometimes it would be careers I would do that in the classroom even I would do um, like jobs and so they would have to act out that job I actually did that with my uh, grad students this semester uh, they loved that um, so it really depended. Yeah, I would do um, some of that. And I think the physical, the feeling it. So um, like in a divorce group, um, I would have kids do some things like we would do even like a judge. So what, you know, because the, that's a big part. And a lot of times kids get get pulled into that legal part, too. So we would talk about that. So yeah, I think it really depended on um, the needs of the group or the the students I was working with. Um, yeah. I'm sure, now where were your groups? Were they specific counseling groups in the school or did yeah. you have a class called improv? So how did uh, that, how'd you get your students? So it was, um, as a school counselor, it was a lot of based on um, needs that we saw. So. Uh, sometimes it would be like grief, kids who were dealing with grief or divorce, or I would do leadership stuff too. So um, with some of them, I would do the um, airplane where they, I would set up obstacles around the room. And then the other ones are sort of like the, the um, uh, air traffic controllers and there, and you know, the the pilots put on the blindfold and so the air traffic controllers, the other kids have to guide the pilot through the obstacle course. Um, oh, I love that. I actually just, I actually have one of my books, which is um, um, about conflict resolution. It's a training manual for school counselors or anybody who works with uh, training peer mediators. And so this last revision, I pulled in a lot of uh, some improv games, and that was when I pulled into that just for teamwork and leadership. Um, so yeah, it was um, most of the time we'd meet for five or six times, 
um, usually once a week for five or six weeks in a school for about 45 minutes or so. Um, so yeah. I bet they loved it and they loved you. Well, I, I hope. I, I think I think the biggest one, I so I have my puppet, uh, Emily, and she and I travel around now because I'm not working full time in the schools. So she and I travel around and we do school assemblies on anti-bullying, conflict resolution, things like that. And a lot of times that's improv too. Um, whatever the students are saying or how they react to something, then um, Emily will respond to that or I'll say right. something too. Um, so yeah, that's a big part of using that improv too with what I'm doing now. Right. And that ties in with counseling. Like, I don't know if it was Carl Rogers, start where the client is at. Yeah, so right. I might have a whole agenda plan for a class, but somebody brings up something and we got to improvise the rest of the class based yeah. on what's going on. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Same thing with assembly. When I'm doing an assembly and I see they're sort of getting antsy, especially, you know, younger kids, pre-K, kindergartners, um, getting kind of antsy, then she, Emily will get much more animated and much more uh, excited. Hey, what? Are you talking about me? Yes, I'm talking about you. I didn't hear you. Yes, I'm talking about you. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> hi, Emily. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Hey. You want to come say hi? Yeah. All right. Come say hi real quick. I heard you saying my name, so I wanted to say hi. Hi. This is Mongo. Oh, hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yes, it's nice to meet you too. You're beautiful. Thanks so much. I like your shirt. I like the polka dots. Thanks. I, I kind of like polka dots too. Emily, how old are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes that depends. Yeah. Sometimes she's seven, sometimes she's eight. Uh, it just kind of depends on the group we're working with. She's usually whatever age the kids are that we're talking to. Right. Well, you're pretty smart, I bet. I bet the kids love you, don't they? Oh, they do. Yeah, I, I love them too. Yes. All right, I'm going to put you back over here for a second. Okay. All right. <laughs> yes, in the school, it was always, how's Emily? It was always, you know, they, they cared about her. It wasn't so much me. <laughs> Did you have a favorite toy or something you loved as a little boy and then your mom had to put it away because it was getting so dirty? I had a little rabbit like that. And one um, day my rabbit wasn't there anymore. And when I was clearing out the house after my mom passed, I found this box and there was oh, rabbit. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there was anything specifically. I always loved um, action figures and I would create like, um scenarios or I would set them up like Ghostbusters and I would set them up like <laughs> battling a ghost or superheroes Batman and I would create sort of dioramas and sets for them uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> stuff like that but no I don't know if there was ever anything uh that I overplayed with okay <laughs> not like my obsession with rabbits so nah. um... So um, getting back to your improv uh, yep. talent and skills, you included that in your dissertation? Yes. So um, the, the idea of cognitive complexity is 
basically saying kind of what you said a few minutes ago of you you never know what a client's going to bring in. You could have last week you were discussing you know work issues or relationship issues and so you may anticipate that's the same thing that you're going to focus on this week but then they come in and say something else happened somewhere else and that's their most immediate pressing need and so this idea of cognitive complexity is um being able to deal with that the the long boring definition is um, the willingness to absorb. Um, so the willingness to look at other perspectives, to consider other perspectives. So the willingness to absorb and the ability to differentiate. Um, so deciding what is important and what's not, uh, what's relevant. So the, the ability to differentiate, integrate, so take what is important and make use of multiple perspectives, uh, leading to more critical and creative ways of thinking and behaving. So again, it's a huge, long definition. So, you know, that first part again is the willingness to absorb. And that goes back to the very first rule of improv. Yes, and right. uh, agreeing that willingness to accept that perspective um, and then differentiate which goes back to new choice, um, what's relevant here, what's not, integrate, bring it into the scene, bring it into the session, the counseling session, and make use of it, make use of what the client's bringing in, um, again, for more creative ways of thinking and behaving. And so um, I had two, two groups of first-year counseling master's students. So um, they're they're both clinical mental health and school counseling and so I had the two groups and I used um, the IRI the interpersonal reactivity index that's there's there's no tool specific to measuring cognitive complexity that's that's about the closest one I can find it's really about empathy which to me is multiple perspectives if you're not empathetic you can't that cognitive empathy is all about perspective taking. And so that's why I really like the IRI. Um, and so anyway, I had my control group and my intervention group. And what I did was about 30 minutes a week with the intervention group. And I pre-tested them, gave them the IRI, did the, um, I think it was 10 weeks of the 30 minutes and then did the post-test to see if there are any differences. Um, it was interesting because unfortunately, there was nothing stati statistically significant uh, showing the differences, but what was really interesting, and I think um, warrants future research is that the folks in the uh, intervention group, the ones who were doing the applied improv, their average score for personal distress, that's one of the scales, personal distress or worry actually went down um, while the other one uh, went up or stayed the same. And then fantasy, creativity, their scores increased in that subscale. 
So I think that's, even though it wasn't statistically significant, I think that's really important to look at more is the people in applied improv, personal distress went down and fantasy went up, which is very interesting to me. Fascinating to me as well. And uh, maybe we can talk after the show because I'm involved in a little research project. So I'll pick your brain on that. Yeah. So, but uh, getting away from me and <laughs> back to you. Now you've written a lot, haven't you? And um, how many books have you written? Um, I've done. So the first one was is called Not Everything is Bullying. And I wrote that because just being in the schools, working in the school, um, and I think a lot of this is from media and, and the explosion when uh, a student completes suicide, it, it gets blown up. And, and even with the um, oh, the Netflix show that um, I can't even remember the name of it now, uh, 13 Reasons Why, um, you know, there, there's just this almost, it feels weird to say it, but this this romanticizing of bullying it's I feel like it's become this thing of I don't know and so anyway I was very concerned I am concerned because I worry about resilience and we talk a lot about resilience and grit in kids and and I worry that anymore kids are very well every I think kids and adults are very instant gratification and when somebody doesn't agree with your opinion or your side, that leads to confrontation and conflict. And and I'm not saying that bully does bullying does not exist. That's not what I'm saying at all. I, I, true bullying is is abuse and and it can be absolutely detrimental. I just worry that we've gotten to this place where somebody disagrees with your side or your opinion. And that suddenly means you're being bullied. They're bullying me. They called me a name. Well, just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean they're bullied. Just be, you don't have to be friends with everybody. Mm-hmm. You need to be friendly, but I, I don't care if you're friends. So I spend a lot of time talking about acquaintances versus friends and building those relationship relationship building. So um that was that was my first one that I did and talking about just you know power and influence how we influence each other um and then the second one which I say I've written two and a half books because the second one was is the training manual on peer mediation conflict resolution um leadership training and then the half is the student manual specifically. So um, I wanted to create something that's, that that trainers like myself, school counselors, social school social workers, anybody who wants to train kids in peer mediation could just pull it off the shelf, have a resource, and you could just go. You could just start the training. Um, so well, those are... To, I'm sorry to interrupt you, no. but... I was going to go back to suicide because it's such an epidemic. Yes. And it can result from bullying, but other factors as well. Right. Um, I think there's social cultural factors as yes. well right now, um, yes. which is terrible and maybe political too, but we won't get into that. Right. Well, yeah. And I see, 
you know, I would watch, um, again, like I said, my initial dissertation, what I, what I had looked at was uh, needs assessment, risk factors versus protective factors. And so I truly believe that there's a formula that if you have this certain, these certain risk factors or a, a number, I mean, it goes back to ACEs, right? Well, we know about the ACEs study in trauma, but there's also mitigating factors, protective factors that can counterbalance those. And so, yes, back to your point of um, even if a student is being truly bullied, but they have those protective factors, those, those things with home or supports that um, they can find help and they can find support for it. It's a much more complicated issue than uh, I think people say of, you know, what is it truly? Um, so yeah, it's a very complicated issue. It certainly is. I've done all work with children of alcoholics, actual children, mm. as well as adults who were children of alcoholics. And that theme of resiliency is really apparent. And you could have the same family. I always think about Clinton, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Clinton became president and his brother had a drinking problem and yeah. they were in the same environment you know, same biological genetic makeup, yet one has this success factor and yeah. the other one makes poor choices. So I think there's a lot to be said about resiliency. And I mean, that's a whole nother topic, I'm sure. <laughs> well, and that, and that goes back to um, what I've been doing, working with schools and, and what I call is trauma improv schools. And so I bring in some neuroscience things. So I work with educators on um, just the stress response and how improv, I tell this story all the time of, uh, I had a student who I, I think there were some major mental health concerns there, but I got called down because this student was in crisis in the classroom and had just convinced himself that the teacher had lava and was going to throw it on him. Now, I don't know if that's truly what he thought, but that's what he was presenting because the teacher had leftover pasta, marinara sauce, um, and it was in the microwave. So I get called down and um, the principal calls and says, hey, this student's really worked up right now. Can you go try and de-escalate, see what's going on? So I go down and that's what you know I'm presented with is she's um, going to throw lava on me. Um, and so I said, you know, I had a choice to make there. I had a choice to deny that reality and say, no, she's not. She's, she's not, that's not lava. And she's not going to throw that on you. And you need to get up and go out to recess. That's where the rest of the class was. You know, that was one choice that I could make or improv. I, I accept the reality and I get that student from the from that uh, stress response back to that prefrontal cortex, that thinking part. And so I engaged and I said, oh, my gosh, what should we do? Right. I accepted the reality of she's going to throw lava on us. Oh, my gosh, what should we do? Which then got the student back into that that prefrontal cortex thinking part of the brain and let's hide under the table. All right. So I got under the table with him. Uh -huh. um, and so now he's in the thinking part of his brain. And I look around the room and I say, Hey, where's the rest of your class? 
Oh, they're at recess. Oh, all right. Do you want to go to recess too? Okay. And that was it, you know, but, but the choice I made of, I could have denied the reality, which would have escalated the, the, the stress response would have left me in crisis and response, you know, much longer, but I chose to just accept the reality and that put him in that thinking part of the brain. So that's an example I use all the time of, of sort of that trauma response and, and, using improv to get people back into that thinking part of their brain. That's beautiful. That's a wonderful story. I just love that. Now you mentioned that you're not teaching anymore. So what are you doing? So right now I am doing um, the assemblies. I'm doing school assemblies um, and I do some, some training. So I've done some staff development for schools in the applied improv. Um, I am doing some ethics workshops coming up. Um, so I have a ethics workshop with a school district. Um, so assemblies, and like I said, I'm teaching the career class right now as an adjunct, um, still trying to decide if that's what I want to do full time. Um, I'm not a big fan of higher ed. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I if I should. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that in a public forum or not. But um, I just, I you know, I have my own personal values and beliefs with some issues in higher ed, and so if I can still teach people and do what I love, counseling and my own business, then. Um, and not have to worry about bureaucracy and hierarchies and red tape, then, you know, I can just do it myself. Yeah. Now, do you see clients? I, I don't right now. Um, I, to me, the, I think I have too much energy to sit still for 50 minutes. That's what I loved about, <laughs> what I loved about school counseling because it was constantly go, go, go. Right. Um, but I think that also led to some burnout and sort of wore me down over the years, that constant. Um, so for me, no, I, I'm not because <clears throat> just the the sitting for 50 minutes and and I don't, I, I don't know if I could give that full attention and that full focus, um, maybe for one or two clients a day. Um, but I've looked at, you know, that's something that um, I've looked at now. And honestly, as I said a few a few seconds ago, I really felt like I was dealing with a lot of sort of vicarious trauma and that and that burnout uh -huh. and compassion fatigue after right. years. Because you know most most people in education, public education, stay for two or three. Most teachers or or counselors stay for two or three, and then they're gone. So. To have 14 years, um, I think I'm kind that's, of- That's novice. another plaque on the wall. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think part of this for me this year um, is really just sort of a, a, I don't know, for lack of better term, sort of a brain detox of that constant stress. Response. I understand. Yeah. I understand so. that. I've been very lucky. There's a program, a book called Rehearsals for Growth by Daniel yeah. Weiner. Have you read it? I have right. not, but I've seen it coming up. Yeah. Well, I've recently become a certified therapist in that program because I've been studying with him and for several years. And um, even before I received my little certificate, a big certificate, um, <laughs> I've been using improv and therapy for several years now. And it, it just works so well. 
it works so well. There's so many ways to use it. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, and yeah. Very, now your website, and we'll show that on our um, text that accompanies this, you have a lot of um, free pamphlet, free little, I want to say pamphlets, I don't know what you call them, instructions, um, and some that you can purchase for a very reasonable price that are a good resource for probably not just counselors, but anybody. I, I was looking at one with a parent family. Um, I think I'm mispronouncing it, but uh, family conversation. Oh, the communication log. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah just, you know, when, um, just, just to document the, what I always say to my grad students is, uh, if it's not written down, it didn't happen, right? That's the first part. If it's not written down, if it's documented, then it never happened. And if it is written down, it happened, and you need to be able to back that up. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. If it's not written down, it didn't happen, you can't prove, you can't back it up. But on the same end, if it is written down, it happened and you need to be able to support why you wrote that down. Um, so I think that's important when it comes to communicating with, with parents um, just to show, yes, we had that conversation or, you know, here's what I did. It could work for couples as well. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. one per person in the relationship has a totally different idea of what happened. So, <laughs> yes, well, and that goes right. That goes back to Gottman and the 69% of what we perceive that's as the most you're going to agree on ever in a relationship is 69%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're just delightful. And well, I'm so glad we've met. And I know you're a big uh, supporter of the Applied Improv Network and give workshops for them. And uh, that is yeah, tremendous. I'm, I'm so excited. I, I um, you know, a lot of the research stuff came from the definition of applied improv I pulled from there. And so a lot of other articles that they have posted really helped guide my work with my dissertation. So it was an amazing resource with the things that they've have. And um, really I'm just now sort of starting to get more involved with it. And I'm excited to present coming up for their global conference doing discussing the dissertation and what I found and sort of getting getting more into that idea of cognitive complexity because I think as you said the political issues right now where we are as a country is so divided and so if you're not willing to consider other people's perspectives we're never going to make progress and so um, I think it's so salient right now and so important to discuss. Absolutely. So um, if you had a, a student or a young person and they were kind of interested in improv, what would your wise statement to them be? Um, uh, I think it really depends on where you are and what your opportunities are. Like if I were you know, if it were me in middle or high school, like there were, there's really no options. I mean, thankfully now with the internet and, you know, it depends on where they are in the location. If, if there's no opportunities for trainings or workshops, or they don't have the, the money to do that, I think you can learn a lot now from just YouTube and, and right, right. You know, checking out some of the things that are online. Um, 
But if it's somebody who there is a local theater group or theater company and they offer some of those workshops, I think talking with with your grownups and, and seeing about taking some some workshops or some some trainings in that. So, yeah, I think it really depends kind of where you are and what your options are. Well, you're not going to make a lot of money off it unless you're a researcher and a scholar. But uh, even I want- then, I'm not making a, a supposition. However, mm-hmm. um, I j- there's so many classes available on Zoom, and many have a pay what you can option. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a group called Queen City at a Charlotte, and they're fabulous. And there's all kinds of. Uh, I was studying improv on Zoom mm-hmm. or um, Skype before the mm-hmm. pandemic, because yeah. I'm isolated in Southwest Florida, there wasn't a lot of available to me. Yeah. So um, we were talking earlier about maybe playing a short game. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I've, I, I'm open to it. If you've got okay. an idea. <clears throat> I was going to ask you to have an idea. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know as much with the virtual side. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. What works virtually? Well, the alphabet game is always a good choice. Yeah, yeah. You you know the do, run, run game? Oh, yeah, yeah. Would we be brave enough to do that? Gosh, I don't know. People may turn it off if they hear my singing. (laughs) Well, let's try it anyway. What do you say? All right, yeah. We can always edit this out if we need to, but we don't need to. So, um, and there's different ways of doing it, but let's just do whatever we can, however we think the song goes, right? And some people start by going a one, two, three, four, and then I met him, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to take a a one syllable name to keep it easier. How's that sound? Okay. Sounds good. And... um, one of the ways I play it is, well, we'll see what we do. Let's just have a fun with it and improvise with it, okay? Right. So yeah. what's the one syllable name? Um, Joe. Joe. Yep. Do you want to start off or do you want me to start off? Um, I can, sure. Go ahead. All right, so we'll go with Monday since it's Monday. Okay. Um. I met him on a Monday and his name was Joe. A do run, 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 run. He said his nose had to blow. A do run, 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 run. Yeah. So I said, I got to go. So I said, I'm in a flow. And we didn't know. I do <laughs> run, run, run. They do run, run. <laughs> we got through it. We got through it. That was beautiful. Yes. Well, thanks so much for your time today. And um, I'm going to be posting your uh, resources on my uh, podcast page. And you're just delightful. And all oh, the places you'll go, I think is wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, the love of talking about uh, applied improv. Absolutely. Great. Well, have a terrific day and week and I'll, I'll see you in Zoom land, I guess. Sounds great. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Matt.